what I want to do tonight is kind of summarize and bring it all together so that hopefully you'll take at least the main items home with you. So we've spelled them out in the agenda sheet that hopefully you picked up there at the door. And I want to go through this, but with a little explanation. We start really with St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. I'm wondering how many of you actually uh, read that, you know, that was in the home reading assignment. Did it help you? Did it give you a little different insight as to the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection? That's what it's intended to be. And I wanted you to read it because even though Paul's writings are often a little difficult or a little heavy, uh, at least it gives you another side or another viewpoint of what I've been talking about over the last nine weeks. And so I would like to not spend a lot of time on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but I want to go through it quickly so that perhaps you can get uh, a little deeper understanding, all right? He begins with talking about uh, the past, really, and bringing forward what has happened and what the resurrection was all about. And it wasn't something new uh, that was totally foreign to the Jewish people. It had been prophesied by uh, many people in the past. And so the scriptures, if they knew and studied the scriptures, they should have expected something like that. They may not have understood uh, thoroughly what its meaning was, but at least the resurrection in itself shouldn't have been a total surprise to them. And yet, in most cases, even the apostles, it was. But if you recall, uh, there were stories going back as far as uh, the excuse me, prophet Elijah, and also his protege, Elisha, both of them uh, talked about the resurrection of the human body. And in many cases, Elijah particularly did raise people from the dead. But that wasn't really a resurrection. That was just returning them to an earthly life. But their reference was also to the resurrection of the human body, and that's the point of John's chapter, I mean, of Paul's chapter 15. He's already talking about, and he expects that you have known, because this wasn't written until uh, the, oh, a little past the middle of the first century. So after roughly 30 years since the resurrection, most people would have known and at least accepted the fact that Christ rose from the dead. But they had a very difficult time in believing that you and I would eventually rise from the dead if we were faithful to the teachings of Christ. We had to accept Christ as Lord and Savior and be faithful to his teachings and then act upon those, and fulfill our role in God's plan of salvation. So that is really the criteria for our resurrection. So that's the point that he was really uh, working toward, and yet I dare say that a lot of people 
probably didn't get it that way, all right? Because the resurrection, at least for us today, is such a unique event that we kind of are overwhelmed by that and we fail to see that it is the first resurrection of the human body, but all mankind who are faithful to the teachings of Christ and accept Christ as Lord and Savior and believe in him, they will also, or we will also, rise from the dead. And that's part of our Christian faith, a very important element of our Christian faith. And as Paul goes on to say that if that had not happened, then everything that we've learned and everything that mankind has kind of accepted and followed up to that point in time would have been sort of a waste of time. Because, as we've said before, particularly last week, the resurrection of Christ was the crowning glory of God's plan of salvation. And what we do is we partake of that, the benefits of that, if we live according to the way Christ has asked us to. So it is not something foreign, it is not something that only Jesus will experience, but hopefully we'll all experience it at some point in time. Any questions on that so far? I don't want to go too far because I want to cover a lot of other material. Yes? Well, the, the lady has asked, how does a person know that they have fulfilled God's plan of salvation? You never will know completely until you get up there. Okay? But, you will know when you don't fulfill it because you actually have to go sort of out of your way to avoid it. And it's by the peace that you are filled with that gives you the courage to accept the fact that you are on the right road or you are working towards fulfilling your role in God's plan of salvation. So peace is the sign of any confirmation that you might want. Even when it's making decisions about, um, in fact, a friend of mine uh, just went through rather a trying uh, period of time deciding on two positions, you know, lucky them, uh, whether they should take this one or that one. And I said, well, you know, go through and review both of them for their uh, qualities, their good points and bad points. And then finally, when you feel that you've accepted the right one, um, you will know. And after a week or so, I heard that that was the way it worked out. The peace that comes with working through the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. That's how you will know. Any other questions on Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Okay, let's kind of review some of the things that we have talked about in these uh, 
past eight weeks. The seven points that we had talked about, I think it was three weeks ago, after or during our discussion on Chapter 18. Yes. Before you go into that, in, uh, in 15.5, uh, I had a question that's not there. Oh, I'm sorry. Cephas. All right. Yes. Anna asked, um, who is Cephas? Cephas is the Greek, uh, no. Yeah. Cephas is the Greek name of Simon. Peter. All right. And it's spelled with a K some places and obviously in your Bible, but most places it's spelled with a C. Okay. And it's spelled in many different ways. Uh, but it translates into Peter, the rock. And Paul uses that uh, sort of off and on um, because, as you probably know from reading his letters, he and Peter didn't get along too well. So even saints don't always get along, you see. All right, let's move on. In all of the Gospel of John, Jesus is fully aware that he is God. But he doesn't use that to his advantage. He uses it only to support what he says and what he does. Right up front, in the very first words of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which is called the prologue, it says, in the beginning, and John deliberately uses the same first words in his gospel as the Bible itself starts out in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. But what John is referring to is really in the beginning of time, <coughs> excuse me, in the beginning of time, Jesus was. Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this case, what the meaning of Word, when it's capitalized, is always referring to Jesus. Right? Throughout any part of the Bible, the New Testament, of course, we're talking about uh, because I don't think it's ever used in the Old Testament in that context. But the whole point that John is making is not to look at this as a historical picture, but to look at it as Christ, the Son of God, working through mankind to accomplish mankind's salvation. One of the main things that Jesus brought through his teaching to earth was to teach all mankind to love, love unconditionally. It didn't take hold, as you probably are very much aware of, with all the wars and the killings and the crime and the grime and corruption that we have. Uh, it certainly hasn't taken place, but at least it's there. And if we don't observe it in our life, 
then we do not and cannot have a relationship with Christ or relationship with God through Christ because that is one of the very first things that we must do. We must love. Love our family, love our neighbor, love any stranger that we come in contact. And I don't mean affection. All right? You don't have to be nicey-nice or kissy-kissy and all of that stuff to somebody that you don't know or somebody that emotionally you don't particularly care for. But you have to extend respect, dignity, and help when necessary. The other day I was in what is my general prayer time and our telephone rings and I had to, I had to make a decision right there quickly whether to answer the phone and stop my prayer or just go on and ignore it. Well, the monitor told me that it was my next door neighbor and so I knew what the case was. They needed help. They're moving and they needed some help. So I had to stop and go over and help them. Okay. Now, that's kind of the love that we're talking about. I didn't particularly want to do it because I was comfortable in my prayer time in my big chair at home, see? But my neighbor needed help. That's what love is all about. That's an example, okay, of what we talk about when we mean, when we talk about uh, agape love or biblical love. It is not that you have to be nicey-nice to somebody that you don't particularly care for, all right? Like is only in the English language. You don't have the word like in most other languages, particularly Romance languages. Not in French, not in Italian, not in Spanish. Okay. You have to use similar words, but not the word like as we understand it in English. That's an emotion. Love is a decision. It can be a split decision, like I had to make, uh, but it's a decision. It's not an emotion. Emotions are something that we have very little control over unless we let them go on and on and on. Another aspect of Jesus' teaching was to reveal the Father and the fact that he was sent from the Father. And by at least inclusion, when he talks about himself as the son of God or the son of man, which was the more common term that he used, and eventually talks about the Holy Spirit in chapters 18 and, or 17 and 18, then he's really implying the establishment of the Holy Trinity. The word Trinity is not used in John's Gospel, but the three persons of the Trinity are very clearly explained. And so that's where we get most of our dogma and understanding of the Trinity. And then Jesus talks about himself as being the way, the truth, and the life. And this is something that the average Christian the average Catholic does not understand. 
And yet, it's such a beautiful way of looking at this God who became man. Right? We can only return to the Father through Jesus. No other way. Now, there are some qualifications and exceptions to that, which I don't want to get into because it takes a little time. But Jesus is the way. He is the truth. Like love, he is also divine truth. And further, when we get into Paul's uh, letters, particularly Romans, he is divine justice, which is something that you have to also think about. Because somebody will invariably say when I talk about God as being all love, they will say or they will think, and I bet there's somebody in here already who is thinking of it, that if God was all loving, how can there be so much crime and and violence and, you know, such horrible things going on in the world? Well, you got to remember, God is also perfect justice. And eventually those people, maybe not in this life, but will come up against that divine justice. Because to step in and prevent them from doing those terrible things, whatever they might be, that would be taking away their free will. And so we can't, or we shouldn't want God to do that, because for him to take away their free will to do evil things you know, would not be in line with his and our understanding of his being divine love itself. Truth. Jesus is the divine truth. All things that are truthful emanate from God himself and are given to us through Christ. And obviously, because he is God, and because God is the author of life, and Jesus is equal to God, he is also the author of life. And that is where we come up against abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, and the like. We are not the authors of life. We cooperate with God in procreating life, but we are not the authors of life. We do not give life, and we cannot take life under no circumstance. And that's the whole basic meaning uh, behind not only the church's stand on those three items, abortion, euthanasia, and capital punishment, but it's because it is a law of God. Not just the church. It's a law of God. All we are doing is reiterating the rules and the laws that God has given us. Praying in the name of Jesus. We've talked a lot about relationships. And praying is what 
begins our relationship. You cannot have a relationship even between two human beings without at least talking to them. How can you have a relationship if you don't talk, if you don't get to know each other? I love to read history, as you can probably tell. And I like particularly to read biographies of people who have done important things, accomplished important things, all right? And you can read everything that's in a library about a given person, but you can never get to know that person. Every time you read something and you think you know pretty much about that person and you read another book, like in the past year or two, I've read two different books about Abraham Lincoln, one that was written some time ago and one that was written more recently. You'd think I was talking and reading about the different, two different people. You know, because what you're getting in biographies is somebody else's opinion of what that person was like. And so when you read two books about the same person, you're going to get two different opinions. And that's why we have four Gospels. Because God in his infinite wisdom has felt that one Gospel would not be enough. Because people could always say, well, the person that wrote that Gospel just made up all that stuff. But if you have four Gospels who tell the same story but from a different point of view and for different reasons and from different time periods, but they all say pretty much the same thing, that's verification of itself. All right? So, but getting back to knowing Christ and having a relationship with him is possible because he is still living. And he comes to us not only through the Eucharist and the Mass, but he comes to us primarily in a personal way through prayer. So all of this language, all of this information, all of this studying that we've done is not going to do you any good if you don't take it into prayer and ask the Holy Spirit or Christ himself to help you better understand and develop a relationship with him. Again, praying in the name of Jesus does not mean that you just tack on Jesus' name at the end of a prayer and wave it like a magic wand and bingo, it happens. Uh -uh. Because as I've said many times, the word name in the Bible means far more than what a person is called. Quite often when we come into a meeting like this, Everybody will be given a little stick-on uh, stick badge, you know, and say, my name is Joe or Pete or Mary or whatever. You didn't do that in biblical times. You protected your name because that's all you had to give somebody else when the time was necessary. Remember, contracts were all verbal. You didn't have written contracts. So when you gave a person your name, a person, and I'm saying outside of your immediate family, all right, 
you are giving them a little bit of yourself, a little bit of authority over you. And this way it was in the form of a contract. Remember, there are a lot of words, admonitions, prohibitions, etc., about swearing or oaths in the Bible. Okay? Swearing in the Bible does not mean taking the name of the Lord in vain. It means taking an oath in vain or not living up to the contract that you have uh, worded yourself into. So praying in the name of Jesus really means that you are praying in accordance with his teaching. That you are asking for something in accordance with your role in God's plan of salvation. And that is where we get this idea of praying in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is extremely powerful. And it could not and should not be used in any way outside of a prayerful reverence. Right? But please don't just tack it on to the end of a prayer uh, or at any other time and think it's going to be a magic wand and you're going to definitely get. Even though Jesus has said, ask for anything in my name and I will give it to you. But the first condition is that you have to be a committed disciple. All right? And we are the disciples of today. The second thing is that your prayer has to be in line with your role in God's plan of salvation. And if you are, <clears throat> if you are asking for something to fulfill your role, God cannot not give you, give it to you. Does that make sense? Because if he's asked you to do something, he can't deny you the tools, regardless of what they may be, to do it. But at least they're in accordance with what his will is and your will to fulfill it. And therefore, the two wills come together. That's what he means when ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. On the night of the resurrection, Jesus bestows the gift of divine peace upon the apostles. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, giving them this particularly powerful peace. And he says then, the sins you have forgiven or will forgive, they are forgiven. And the sins you shall retain or not forgive, they will not be forgiven. In other words, he is giving the church through the apostles, through the bishops, the right to forgive sin. And that is why we go to a priest who has handed down that power, but also the priest represents not only the church, but the body of Christ. Because when you sin, God forbid, but when you do, you not only offend God, 
but you offend the body of Christ. And the purpose of going to a priest is the priest represents the body of Christ as well as the power given by Christ to the church. Please remember that because most of you have already been asked, why do I have to go to confession to a priest? Have you not? Have you all been kind of questioned one way or another on that item? Yeah. It's a very common thing. The other way you can answer that is, you might want your sins forgiven, but how do you know if all you do is ask God directly, even in prayer? Okay. And by the way, Easter duty, this is getting off the track a little bit here, but you are bound to go to confession and receive the Holy Eucharist at least once a year in order to be a Catholic in good standing. And that time is during the Easter season, which starts from the first Sunday of Lent to Pentecost Sunday, or in some dioceses to the following Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday. Okay. So that's roughly six, six, no, three months. Roughly three months. Okay. So, you can't say, well, I'm too busy. First Sunday in Lent, yes. First Sunday of Lent uh, to Pentecost Sunday. All right, roughly three months. So, you are bound in good faith to go to confession. Yes, Maria. Well, perhaps one thing that I didn't make clear. Only if you have mortal sin. If you are lucky enough to be, be one of those modern-day saints where you haven't any serious sin, then, yes, a communal penance or praying and ask God's forgiveness is sufficient. All right, but regardless of what they said or didn't say, the rule is, I can give you canon law rule, that for serious or mortal sin, you must go to the confession of a priest. No excuse, no qualifications on that. The vine and the branches. This is sort of an interesting allegory here where Christ represents himself 
Uh, excuse me, Mike? Uh, the Anglicans do not demand it or require it, but they recommend it. The Eastern Church is very clear on requiring it. The Eastern Catholic Churches require it, yes. And almost all of the other uh, rites, Roman rites, um, require it, yes. Yes, ma'am. Let me stop you for a moment. He is not forgiving you your sin. It's the power that was given him, and it's through that power that your sin is being forgiven. He's only an instrument of the church and of God. He is not God. All right. So don't look at the individual and his list of sins, because he has to go to confession also. Priests do go to confession. Even the Pope goes to confession. And all the bishops have to go to confession. So don't look at it as the individual giving you something of himself. He is only passing judgment based on certain rules and regulations of the church. And so kind of keep that in mind uh, rather than the individual. Okay? Uh, the, good, the, the example that I like to use is that we all know uh, about the Avignon Popes back in the 13th or 14th century, I forget just when. There were like three popes, you know, kind of jockeying for a position, three at one time, that is, because they all claim to be. All right, so it was St. Catherine of Siena who finally got that all straightened out. And so people say, well, isn't the line of succession broken there when you had three and you didn't know who was the right one or not? The power of the church was given to Peter, and the chair of Peter, as it's called, is how that power is handed down, not to the person, but to the position he fills. So 
please keep that in mind. You know, if Pope Benedict the Sixteenth was caught in the bar with some floozy some evening, all right, that wouldn't totally wipe out the power of the Pope. Pardon me for being so crude, but uh, the power of the Pope goes with the position, not with the individual. And the power of forgiving sin goes with the position of a priest in the confessional, but not the individual who's sitting on the other side of the screen. That's the only way I can ex explain and help you there. Okay. All right. Yes. With the three popes, which one was the actual pope? None of them, because a fourth one was elected as the original, as the correct one. Which one was the pope? I don't remember which name. No, offhand. No. But she got all three of them to resign uh, peaceably, and the fourth one was then legitimately uh, elected, and so the power of succession continues down through what is called the chair of St. Peter. And every year we celebrate uh, that. I forgot it's somewhere's, uh, well, it was in the last few months. Uh, I don't remember just when, but recently we celebrated the feast of the chair of St. Peter. And that is what it really meant. The power of the Pope comes down through the position not the individual. Obviously, the individual has a heck of a lot of power while he's sitting in that chair. Well, okay, yes? The power resides in Yes, yes. Good way of putting it. Thank you. Did you get that? The power resides in the office of the Pope rather than the office holder. Just like, uh, you know, the chairman of the board or the president of <coughs> any large company. Presidents and chairmen of the board come and go, but the power of that company resides in who is ever in the chair of the chairman or the CEO or the president. Okay? Good way to look at it. Let's go on. Chapter 18 seems to divide the book of glory between Jesus completing his earthly mission of teaching, primarily teaching. Of course, that included the miracles and many other things, but it was primarily a mission of teaching. Then from 18 through 21 is really the climax of his mission, and that was his passion, death, and, well, the passion and death was the climax. The resurrection was really uh, the acceptance, the glory that went with completing the mission. Okay. There's a great deal of emphasis and importance put on the fact that Jesus is the one sent by the Father, Jesus himself. If you kind of counted uh, the many times that he talks about being the one sent by the Father, uh, it'll probably range in the 
20 to 30 times in the last uh, four chapters. Important because of the continuity. God's plan of salvation began with the Father. And it works its way through the Son and is completed by the Holy Spirit still in progress. So Jesus really was very adamant about getting that message out, that he was sent by the Father, and his authority for what he said and what he did was not solely his own, although he had the power, but the authority, the idea, the plan, really was the Father's. And this was his mission and his role. I think one of the most important things and one of the things that is so new to most people is the whole idea of what is eternal life and when does eternal life begin. The synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sort of give us the impression that eternal life begins after we die and if we go to heaven. It's not really stated that bluntly, but nevertheless, that's the impression that they give us. John clearly, clearly tells us that if we accept Christ and his teachings and acknowledge the fact that he died for our sins at the request of the Father, and we live in accordance with those teachings, then eternal life begins then in us living and now. Very important. But what the flip side of that is, is if at any time we decide to give up and not live according to the teachings of Christ, or we are offended in some way and we bluntly ignore or set aside all of that, we can lose that kernel of eternal life as well. So it is something that is very precious and should be protected as something that is within you that is akin to God himself because eternal life is God himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he means, eternal life. Yes, ma'am. Well, yes, because one gives up his faith or her faith uh, voluntarily, well, voluntarily, but it might be caused by some traumatic event or just a dying out and, you know, if you don't lose, use it, you lose it type of thing. Being excommunicated is something that is done by the church. You. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Good point. Good point. Both would result in the loss of eternal life. Yes, sir. Well, yes, yes, he has, because if he says, I'm through with the Catholic Church, I'm through with, with religion in general, he's also then saying, I'm through with whatever was given to me in baptism. That's right. Yes, yes, definitely. Remember, God does not condemn anyone. They condemn themselves. All right? As clear as that. In fact, if I... Yes, Steve? Uh, John fifteen six. Anyone who does not remain in me will be thrown out like the branch of the Yes, uh, that's what I was looking for. This is a commentary on... Um, no, it wasn't here. Oh, it's in another book I'm reading. I'm reading three or four books at one time, and I forget. But that very question was uh, answered. In fact, I just read it again today and marked it. Uh, but if anyone knowing, oh, I know where it was. It was in one of the documents of Vatican II. Um, forget which one now offhand. If you want to come back next Tuesday, I'll... Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyone who knowingly gives up their faith, either out of disinterest or neglect or whatever, but does it voluntarily and knowing that they have done it, they give up eternal life. You know, in a way, yes, yes. But uh, like I said, if you don't use your faith, you lose it. Yes, but remember, it's not your responsibility to get somebody else into heaven. Uh, yes, you're, you should be praying if you feel that that is something that God is asking you to do. But you are not responsible for other people's souls. Uh, she prayed for 30 years, yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, good Jewish mother. Regarding both excommunication and voluntarily giving up your faith. Hypothetically, of course, if you're on your deathbed and you say, Lord, forgive me a sinner, would that... Uh, if you really mean it, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. 
Yes, a lot of people poo-poo uh, deathbed conversions, and that would be an example of one of them. But there's a lot of power in that. And that is why the church is very much against capital punishment. It's because you're taking away a life that might come around to asking for forgiveness and a last-minute confession. So capital punishment is no longer... Um, well, let's be capital punishment should not be promoted or accepted by any Catholic, because again, we are not the authors of life, and therefore we cannot take life, because the whole idea is you are preventing that person from uh, converting themselves or being coming around. So, with a person condemned to death is on death row and is ready to be walked to the table or the chair or whatever it might be. Uh, if there was a minister or a priest in the event of a Catholic, uh, that individual could uh, confess and he would be changed. If he was truly if sorry. If he was sincere, yes. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. It's within. It's within. Yes. Yes. This. Yes. In that case, you wouldn't really even need of the absolution given by a priest. Well, if yes, if you know you're going to die in the next five or ten minutes, uh, yes, you would be sincere. But would it really be sincere? Yeah. Yes, Dick? Flip it a little bit on. I've been coming to the understanding that it takes work, education, and knowledge to really know God. You bet. So, but wait a minute. Let me just say, and excuse me for saying this, but it takes work to have any relationship, particularly a marriage. Okay? And you find it well worthwhile, I'm sure. So, the same holds true for a relationship with God. My, my question then is, I don't think a seven-year-old could do it. Maybe a 15-year-old, more likely a 30-year-old, or a 70-year-old. So the thought that what about to, an 80 year old? No eternal life now. <coughs> you have to be one with God. Says it's not something you do in your youth. Well, that's all right. That's understandable. You know, a flower doesn't bloom until after uh, all of the leaves and the roots and so forth have taken place. Uh, and that is the way we often call our faith. It blossoms when the time is ripe, all right? And God understands that. Obviously, as you pointed out, uh, a seven-year-old child or younger um, would not be capable of uh, even understanding what a relationship is all about. And you have to grow into that understanding. I think even, uh, you know, a teenager 
especially today, they don't understand. Um, but that's part of life. That's part of life. It illustrates even more, going to your question, the importance of the sacrament and the power that they have to give us. Yes. To live this eternal life. Yes. Yes. Prayer alone is insufficient. To have a balanced spirituality, it requires prayer, the Eucharist, and the other sacraments, obviously, and studying. And not just reading the Bible. Because as you've all learned from this class, and I'm sure others, that just by reading the Bible, you do not really understand or get the essence of what is there. You have to read what other people have experienced in their readings and understanding of the Bible. And after you put them all together, it gradually comes to you from the Holy Spirit. But it is work, no doubt about it. But it is a beautiful work because the end result is life eternally with God. Yes, Maria. Well, you're right. I totally agree with what you've said. Uh, but I'm talking to this group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That may be. And the church has made provision for that. It has even made provisions for those people who have never had an opportunity to know Christ. Uh, and for other faiths, it used to be years ago, uh, particularly before Vatican II, not the church specifically, but many people of authority within the church would teach that only through Christ and the Catholic Church could you go to heaven. That was never the teaching of the church. Because there are qualifications, and they were never explained. Vatican II has done that now. I do recommend that you get a book and at least read. Um, there are many books that give you a synopsis. Uh, the, the documents of Vatican II would look more like the New York telephone book. I mean, as far as weight, <coughs> thickness, and boredom. But there are many, there are many books that will give you a very good synopsis of what the understanding of each of those 16 documents are and the many documents that came out of those 16. And I highly recommend it because it's not difficult reading. In fact, it's very beautiful, very hopeful and encouraging. Um, 
but it does respond to Maria's question and, and comment there. But I'm talking to you people, uh, and that's what I'm really focusing in on, that you as educated Christians, Catholics, you must really take all of this into prayer and the Eucharist and study in order to have a true spirit, balanced spirituality. You can. I never said that you couldn't. Yeah, I never said that you couldn't at some point. Well, if you, what I'm saying is if you denounce him and then die the next hour of the day, huh? Well, maybe I didn't say it that way, all right? So I apologize. But, yes, you can always come back. And God always understands the trials and tribulations you're going through. And will probably wait as the prodigal son's father waited for him, okay, to come back. And you can always come back. But if you don't come back, then you're the one that condemned yourself, not God. Okay? Free will is a dangerous thing for most people. Okay? They expect, in many cases, that they can do all kinds of, let's say, dumb things, sinful things, and God is going to love them? No. No. You all are born with the moral law within you. You all know right from wrong in its basic, its basic um, understanding. And if you totally ignore all of that, then why should God do anything for you? But if you've gone through all kinds of trials and eventually come to God even if you say, I don't quite believe that you're even there because you haven't listened to me, you haven't heard me, etc. That's a form of prayer. And if you beg God's forgiveness, then he's going to welcome you home just like the prodigal son's father did. On the other hand, remember what the other son did. He was faithful. He did what his father told him. He never griped or complained, but in his heart, he hated every minute of it. Was he any better? No. And we're all one of those sons at some point in our life. But we can always come back if we come to our senses and realize it. Connie, you had a question? Mother Teresa, sure. Where they just they like to abandon you, and yet that was a very temporary part of their life because they, you know, they knew it was there. You're just asking it. Well, in many of the saints, Connie just mentioned, you know, Mother Teresa going through a long period of struggle uh, where she thought God had abandoned her. Many of the saints. Uh, experience the same thing. God lets them feel that sense of human abandonment for a very good reason, 
St. Teresa of Avila went through the same kind of thing. St. John of the Cross did the same thing. St. John of the Cross was beaten and, and uh, imprisoned uh, without food or water for a long period of time by his own people, by his own community, because they thought he was nuts, pardon the expression. Uh, so they all went through some trial and tribulation of some kind. But that's what made them great saints. So don't feel that God is neglecting you when you're going through a rough time or perhaps somebody you know is going through a rough time because that's the time when God is closest to you just waiting for you to call out for his help. So I think the 42nd Psalm Christ recited when he was crucified. Yes. Very good, very good, yes. Yes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the Father didn't forsake him, but he let him experience what human suffering was all about because he represented all mankind and had to experience a little of what all mankind experienced. Susan? Well, that was written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and besides, Paul wasn't married. <laughs> but the power of prayer, and let's get back, let's get back to that. The power of prayer is extremely strong. Right. You have no idea what prayer can really do, particularly when two or more are in agreement and praying for a specific uh, something or other. Okay. Uh, again, it has to be in accordance with their role in God's plan of salvation and for the betterment of a third person, if that's what they're praying for. So prayer, please, spend the rest of the two weeks in Lent, or whatever time is left, to spend some time in prayer, because it is so important. You cannot have a relationship with Christ without it. And I don't mean you have to spend long hours on your knees reciting the rosary or anything of that kind. I sit in a very comfortable chair and I talk to God and he talks to me. Okay, That's really more important. You can use all kinds of tools, you might say, the Liturgy of the Hours, the Psalms. Liturgy of the Hours is made up primarily of Psalms, but nevertheless... You can use various forms to help you, but spend time in talking to him and listening to him. Remember, prayer is half and half. As we've said before, 
the resurrection of Jesus was the one and only time in mankind's history that that has happened. But we all will experience that if we die in the good graces of God. I won't go through all of that again. But it is accomplishing our role in God's plan of salvation just as Christ accomplished his role. Remember the diagram that I gave you, the circle with the three parts in it. Each of the persons of the Trinity had a role in the plan of salvation. And they fulfilled it according to God's plan. The Holy Spirit has taken a little longer and his plan continues on until the end of time. And that is why that circle is not completed. But the resurrection of Christ was the acknowledgement and acceptance of, by the Father, of God's, of Jesus' mission. The completion of that mission uh, as it was expected to be. Any questions there? Because I want to go on to a few other things. All right. I hope you've all had a chance to think about this challenge. If you haven't a copy of the challenge, there's some on the back table. This one here. Okay. Now, this is not something that I have written. Okay, this is not me giving you a challenge. I'm just bringing it up because this is a challenge that Christ himself has thrown out to all his disciples. No one is excluded. This comes out of Mark's gospel. If anyone would want to come after me, he must first deny himself. That is, his will. And take up his cross and follow me. God's will. Now, a lot of people don't understand that, and yet it's extremely important that you start to conform your life and all of your appointments and all of your decisions in accordance with what God is asking of you personally. You can't say, well, God, I'm sorry, my dentist gave me an appointment for tomorrow, and uh, so i got to make that, and I can't go to church. I don't know of any dentist or any doctor that won't change it if it doesn't agree with you. Okay, But how many people will do that? They'll take whatever the dentist or the doctor or, you know, a hairdresser or whatever uh, says, even though it may interfere with something that is more important to your spiritual life. That's what I'm really talking about. Conforming your life to your spiritual objective. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That is his physical, earthly life. If you spend a great deal of time 
always trying to enhance your earthly life, eventually your spiritual life is going to die. And that's what it says. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. All right. This goes back to a question that somebody here asked a few weeks ago. Why it was it necessary that God expected uh, uh, Jesus uh, to die such a horrible death? All right. Well, as we've said before, it was in reparation of mankind's sins. Man was the one that sinned, therefore man had to do something or give something back to God in reparation. And mankind didn't have anything that was to the level of a divine God. And so God had to give mankind that. All right. But look at it another way. We often see, particularly in time of war, how occasionally a soldier will, let's say, and I just read one of this not too long ago, a soldier will fall on a mine to protect his body, his buddies. All right, knowing that 99% of the chance of his Dying is there. One percent, he might get to live, but he's going to die. But he is doing it out of love for humanity, his buddies. Look at it in another way. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, a great saint, a priest, German priest, died in one of the concentration camps. He took the place, well, let's, let me give you a little bit of background. Somebody had, in the concentration camp, had murdered or killed a German guard. The head of the camp said, all right, because you have killed one of our people and you won't own up to who did it. I'm going to take ten of your people and put them to death. So he said, you, 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 and you, and so forth. One of the people that he chose was a father of a large family. The father begged this man in front of everybody to spare him because he had a large family and they would have no way to support themselves without him. And the commandant or whatever said, no, 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 he's going to be, he was chosen, that's it. Maximilian Colby stepped forward, this Catholic priest stepped forward and said, let me take his place. I am without a family. I am only a Catholic priest and I would give my life for him. And he did. Those ten people then were stripped and left out to starve to death and freeze to death in the winter in Germany. Maximilian Kolbe <coughs> is now a saint of the church for recognizing the value of other people's life 
and giving his own out of love. That's what it's all about. And Christ is the example of the same thing, giving his life for the redemption of all mankind. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul or her soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so we've talked about that tonight in many ways. People saying, well, I want to give up uh, God. I don't believe in this. Why do I go to church? You read that little story I gave you uh, last week about the guy who says, I've been to church now for 30 years. I can't remember a single uh, sermon. Uh, obviously, you know, he probably was asleep. Uh, it never got further than his ears uh, and never got down into his heart, obviously. But uh, the other person says, well, my wife cooked me uh, dinner for 30 years, and if she hadn't, I wouldn't be here today because it fed um, me and uh, gave me life. And of course, that's the whole objective. Uh, you don't go to Mass to get something out of it. You go to give. And in the process of giving worship, you receive but far more in return than whatever you could give. So, this is not a challenge that I'm making to you that you have to answer to me. This is a challenge that you have to answer to your God. Easter is in less than two weeks. I hope that you will all put what the knowledge that you have gained in this class together and come up with the appropriate answer to this challenge. Any other questions? Well, this ends our class, the nine-week session on the Book of Glory. I hope you've all learned something that you can take with you and it will help you in your spiritual life to grow stronger and to grow closer to Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for being with us, for guiding us during this nine weeks. We ask that you continue to guide us until the end when you call us from this earth. For without you, we would certainly lose our way. But help us while we are here to better understand Holy Scripture and the teachings of the church so that they will enhance our life and most of all, give us the grace to develop a close personal relationship with you, our Lord and Savior. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.